0: Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 172. Our first story this week comes from the bbc.com and it's entitled The Peculiar History of the Ordnance Survey. This story was written on the 14th of October so the introduction may not make sense at the moment but it's still too good a story to pass by. It's midway through October, so before the days get too short to make it worthwhile, why not grab your compass and hiking boots, shrug on your waterproof and take to the hills? Chances are, if you're a regular walker, you will stride out safe in the knowledge that an ordnance survey map secreted about your person means you'll know exactly where and when you got lost. The history of the organisation known as OS is not merely that of a group of earnest blokes with a penchant for triangulation and an ever-present soundtrack of rustling cagoules. From its roots in military strategy to its current incarnation as producer of the Ramblers' navigational aid, the government-owned company has been checking and rechecking all 243,241 square kilometres of Great Britain for 227 years. Here are some of the more peculiar elements in the past of the famous mapmakers. Battles and bloodshed. In the final years of the 18th century, Europe was in turmoil. England was braced for invasion by the French and the Government's Board of Ordnance, a body responsible for supplying equipment to the Army and Navy and generally defending the realm, needed accurate maps so it could position its troops effectively. The OS got to work, and by the end of 1794, the coast from Fairlight Head in Sussex to Portland in Dorset had been mapped. When World War I broke out, mapmakers were posted overseas to replace existing French maps, which were too small in scale and imprecise. Over the course of the war, the teams produced at least 25 million battlefield maps for use by British troops, and a total of 342 million for the entire war effort. Pointy sticks. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, Teams of tape measure wielding men swarmed around the country with big pointy arrows. They were urban surveyors using fixed features such as the corners of buildings as markers for mapmaking. These markers were called revision points and photographs were taken, often with amused or bemused onlookers, to keep track of where these points were. Education manager at OS, Elaine Owen, has made some of the images taken in Manchester available online. And there's a link within this article. She says they show a treasure trove of images which illustrate everyday life while surveyors were going about their daily business. Many of the children in the pictures would still be alive today. We'd love people to visit the website and search the places and streets they know, to see if they recognise anyone, or even themselves. That would be fantastic. Stonehenge in different positions Some of the oldest photographs of Stonehenge were bound in a book in 1867 and recently unearthed from the OS archives. Plans and photographs of Stonehenge show the then head of OS, Colonel Henry James, and his family having a picnic. The book was made for the agency's officers and therefore was extremely detailed. The survey, however, is no longer accurate, as the stones have since been rearranged into positions believed by experts to replicate their original ancient layout. According to English Heritage, various stones had been propped up with timber poles from the 1880s. But concern for the safety of visitors grew when an upright stone and its lintel fell in 1900. The then-owner had made it safe, which was the beginning of a campaign to restore and conserve Stonehenge. The last stones were consolidated in 1964. People lived there. In keeping with its military provenance, the original office of the OS was at the Tower of London. But in 1841, fire swept through the Grand Storehouse, threatening both the Crown Jewels and the OS's records and instruments. Happily, the treasure and the mapping equipment were both saved, but the fire prompted the department's move to a new headquarters in an empty former barrack building in Southampton. Slightly oddly, it wasn't just used as office accommodation. Many staff lived on the site. The 1871 census records more than 20 children aged under 12 living at the address. Mapping Ireland inspired a play. In 1824 Parliament ordered then Director General of the OS, Major Thomas Colby and his staff across the Irish Sea as an accurate map of Ireland was needed for land taxation purposes. Brian Friel's play, Translations, is inspired by the OS survey and the difficulties the English surveyors had with Irish place names and tells the story of Owen, who returns to rural Donegal from Dublin with British Army officers who are working on the 6-inch-to-the-mile survey. They translate local place names into English, for example, Pol na Corrach, meaning whole of the sheep in Irish, becomes Pool Kerry in English. The character of Captain Lancy is a fictionalised version of Major Colby. Mountaintop Feasts Major Colby was the longest-serving director of the OS, who threw himself wholeheartedly into the job. On one occasion in 1819, he walked 586 miles in 22 days, in his pursuit of cartographic perfection. Despite being the boss, Major Colby always travelled with his men and helped to build the camps. And at the end of each successful mission, he would arrange a mountaintop party, complete with an enormous plum pudding to top the celebration off. Colby House, which was the headquarters of the OS Northern Ireland until 2014, is named in his honour there was a special eclipse map. On the 29th of June 1927, a total solar eclipse traversed Great Britain and Norway for the first time since 1724. There was great excitement over the event and lots of people wanted to know the best way to experience such a thing. So a special map was produced to show the times and places where the eclipse could be seen. Sadly, most of Wales and England was cloudy that day, but at the site where the astronomer Royal chose to set up his camera, Giggleswick in Yorkshire, the clouds did part at the right moment, just long enough to capture the 23 second totality. Waterproof maps were available as early as the 1930s. If you thought maps were merely for finding the way, think again. A special waterproofing spray process meant that from the 1930s, OS maps could be used as a ground sheet and a cape in case of a sudden shower. And if you're likely to spend more time picnicking than hiking, detailed maps, including those of Snowdonia, Dartmoor and the Isle of Arran, are currently available in the form of waterproof rugs. It's worth visiting this article in the show notes at origins.info. Just go to origins.info, click on the link to episode 172 of the Mysteries Abound podcast and show notes and then on the link to this article, because there are some great photographs associated with the article showing the actual images from the time when the OS survey was done. Definitely worth a look if you're interested. A little while back, one of our listeners, called Mark Goldspink, suggested this story and I thought it's a good one to add to the Mysteries Abound podcast. It's from the smithsonianmag.com and it's called The CIA experimented on animals in the 1960s too. Just ask Acoustic Kitty. Turns out that cats really don't take directions well. And appropriately enough, this is written by Kat Eschner. But their name spelled K-A-T, not C-A-T. Drugs, nukes and animal operatives. Project MK Ultra. The CIA's infamous human mind control project wasn't the only thing that was going on in the 1960s. Related content. In that decade, writes Tom Vanderbilt for Smithsonian Magazine, the US government deployed non-human operatives, ravens, pigeons and even cats to spy on Cold War adversaries. Unlike MKUltra, this project was never the subject of a congressional hearing, but some documents as well as sources from inside the CIA confirm that Project Acoustic Kitty was real. Cats are infamously disobedient, But the CIA believed that with the right training, they could become spies. The organisation also wanted to exploit another of the animal's traits, curiosity. It was thought that a cat wired to record sound would be able to come and go unnoticed and with the use of audio cues could be controlled to go where it would record interesting sounds like talks between Soviet leaders. The cruel story of Acoustic Kitty in its most basic form crops up in a number of places. As told by Victor Marchetti, who was formerly an assistant to the CIA's director, it basically involved creating a Franken-kitty. They slit the cat open, put batteries in him, wired him up. Marchetti is usually quoted as saying, They made a monstrosity. It sort of sounds believable. After all, the 1960s CIA was up to a lot of kooky stuff. But the story of Project Acoustic Kitty isn't that simple, writes Matt Soniak for Mental Floss. It actually took five years to complete, he writes. After all, creating a high-tech cat was no small task in an era of reel-to-reel audio recording and room-sized computers. Not just that, the cats had to still look like cats with no weird protrusions or suspicious scars, Soniak explains. Working with outside audio equipment contractors, the CIA built a three-quarter inch long transmitter to embed at the base of the cat's skull. Finding a place for the microphone was difficult at first, but the ear canal turned out to be the prime and seemingly obvious real estate. The antenna was made from fine wire and woven all the way through to the tail, through the cat's long fur to conceal it. The batteries also gave the techies a little trouble, since the cat's size limited them to only using the smallest batteries and restricted the amount of time the cat would be able to record. After testing on dummies and live animals, the project was ready to move forward and the first acoustic kitty was created. The problem that arose, she, or he, with the CIA redactions, it's hard to tell, was just a normal cat with some high-tech innards, writes Soniak. As every cat owner knows, they do what they want. Outside the lab, there was just no herding the cat. She'd wander off when she got bored, distracted or hungry. The cat's hunger issues were addressed with another operation – The additional surgical and training expenses are estimated to have brought the total cost up to $20 million. But Acoustic Kitty was finally ready to venture into the real world. On that first trip out though, the cat was hit and killed by a taxi while crossing the road. It never even made it to the target. By 1967, the project was scrapped along with the remains of Acoustic Kitty. I'm not sure for how long after the operation the cat would have survived, even if it hadn't been run over, Jeffrey Rickelson of the NSA Archive told The Telegraph. A heavily redacted memo titled Views on Trained Cats, held in the National Security Administration Archive at George Washington University, suggests that the project wasn't viewed as a total failure. Our final examination of trained cats, for use in the convinced us that the program would not lend itself in a practical way to our highly specialised needs, the memo reads. However, discover that cats can indeed be trained to move short distances was, in itself, a remarkable scientific achievement, the memo reads. If any further acoustic kitties were created, the documentation hasn't come to light But the advent of tiny computers and high-tech spy equipment has likely been part of the reason the project hasn't been revisited. And come on, a $20 million feline radio transmitter? It could have only happened in the 60s. And from the HistoryExtra.com website, 8 Battle of Hastings Facts The Battle of Hastings, in which the Anglo-Saxon king Harold II attempted to defend his realm from the invasion forces of William, Duke of Normandy, later known as William the Conqueror, took place on the 14th of October 1066. It was won by William and marked the beginning of the Norman Conquest of 1066. But how much do you know about the Battle of Hastings? Here, historian Mark Morris brings you the facts. Number one. Why did the Battle of Hastings take place? The Battle of Hastings took place in 1066 because of a disputed succession. For the previous 24 years, England had been ruled by Edward the Confessor who, despite being married, had failed to produce any children to succeed him. It is thought that in the middle of his reign, in the year 1051, the king promised the English succession to his cousin, William, Duke of Normandy. Edward had spent half his life in exile in Normandy and clearly felt a strong debt of gratitude towards its rulers. This plan went down badly with Edward's English subjects, especially the family of his queen, Edith. She was the daughter of the country's most powerful earl, Godwine. And in the later 1050s, her brothers, the Godwine Sons, became the dominant force in English politics. During the same period, a long-lost relative of Edward, a boy known as Edgar Ethling, was located in Hungary and brought to England. However, His impeccable ancestry counted for nothing. When Edward died on the 5th of January 1066, it was his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, who claimed the throne, insisting that the old king had nominated him in his dying moments. Harold was crowned the very next day, but soon had to fend off challenges to his rule. The first, an unexpected invasion led by Harold Hardrada, King of Norway, he successfully overcame on the 25th of September 1066 by winning the Battle of Stamford Bridge in Yorkshire. The second challenge came from William, Duke of Normandy, who landed at Pevensey in Sussex three days later. Number two, where did the Battle of Hastings take place? The Battle of Hastings is somewhat of a misnomer. Although William, having landed at Pevensey, quickly moved along the coast to Hastings and established his camp there, the actual engagement with King Harold took place some six miles to the northwest, at a site that has been known ever since as Battle. This location has been contested in recent years, but the arguments for alternative sites are extremely flimsy, whereas the evidence for the traditional site remains overwhelmingly strong. Having won the Battle of Hastings, William was determined to commemorate his victory and atone for the bloodshed by building an abbey, Battle Abbey, and happily its ruins still survive today. According to a host of 12th century chroniclers, not just, as is often claimed, the chronicle of Battle Abbey itself, the high altar of the Abbey Church was erected over the place where Harold was killed. Even William's obituary in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, written by an Englishman soon after the king's death in 1087, noted that Battle Abbey was built on the very spot where God had granted the conqueror his victory. This strong chronicle evidence is supported by the site of the abbey itself, which from Monk's point of view was badly situated on sloping ground and ill-supplied with water. It is a location that makes sense only if William insisted they build in that precise location, as tradition maintained was the case. Number three, how many soldiers were involved in the Battle of Hastings? The short answer to this is, we don't know. Many Medieval chroniclers are notoriously unreliable when it comes to providing numbers for the size of armies. William the Conqueror's own chaplain, William of Poitiers, claims that his master brought 60,000 men with him to England, and two other chroniclers assert that the Duke's army was made up of 150,000 men. In reality, no medieval armies were ever this large. In the later Middle Ages, by which time we have more reliable evidence, in the form of muster rolls and financial accounts, We can see that the largest armies raised in the British Isles numbered about 35,000 men. But when they had to fight in France, English monarchs never managed to ferry more than 10,000 troops across the Channel. If these were the maximums obtained by mighty kings like Edward I and Edward III, a mere Duke of Normandy is unlikely to have been able to assemble a force that was reckoned in five figures. The conventional figure offered for the size of William's army is 7,000 men, but rests on little more than guesswork by Victorian scholars. As to the size of the English forces, we are even less well informed. Harold Godwinson's son, fighting strength, must have been reduced by his clash with Harold Hadrada in September and several chroniclers maintain that the English king rushed to confront the Normans before all his forces were assembled. Since the fighting at Hastings lasted all day, however, the reasonable conclusion is that the two sides were fairly evenly matched. Number four, what weapons and tactics were used at Hastings? A look at the most famous source for the Battle of Hastings. The Bayeux tapestry suggests that the weapons used by the English and the Normans were very similar. On both sides we see men wearing male shirts and conical helmets with flat fixed nasals, protecting themselves with kite-shaped shields and attacking their opponents with swords and spears, though spears were far more common. The only notable difference in terms of kit is that some of the English prefer to wield axes sometimes small ones for throwing, but often great battle axes that required two hands to swing. When it came to tactics, however, the two sides at Hastings had very different ideas, as contemporary chroniclers noted. The English, after centuries of fighting against Vikings, fought in Scandinavian fashion, standing on foot and forming their celebrated shield wall. Significantly, this was the case not only for the ordinary soldiery, but also the elite, right up to and including King Harold himself. The Norman elite by contrast, despite their own Viking origins, had adapted during the course of the 10th century to fighting on horseback. The action at Hastings was therefore unconventional, with the English standing stock still on top of a ridge obliging the Norman Cavalry to ride up a slope in order to engage them. Number 4. Why did William win and why did Harold lose? At first it seems that the English Army's tactics would serve them well. Despite repeated assaults from the Norman infantry and cavalry, the shield wall held firm. Some way into the battle, however, a crucial turning point occurred. A rumour ran through the Norman ranks that William had been killed and some of his forces turned and started to flee. It was almost disastrous and only retrieved by William removing his helmet and riding along the line to demonstrate that the rumour was untrue. But seeing their enemies retreating in disarray persuaded some of the English that the battle was won and so they pursued them down the hillside. Once the Normans had recovered their composure and wheeled round to attack their pursuers, they found that the shield wall now had breaks in it. Another factor that helped decide the battle was the relative numbers of archers on both sides. Our two contemporary narrative accounts, the Song of the Battle of Hastings and William of Poitiers, make frequent reference to Norman bowmen sending thick clouds of arrows against the English but do not once mention the English replying with similar volleys. Similarly, the Bayeux tapestry shows many Norman archers, but only a solitary Englishman is depicted with a bow. It seems possible, therefore, that Harold's army contained fewer bowmen, perhaps on account of the haste with which it was assembled, and that this could have proved decisive, given the way in which the English king is traditionally said to have died. More on that shortly. Number six. How and when in the battle did King Harold die? What ultimately decided the battle was the death of King Harold. Darkness was already descending, says the song of the Battle of Hastings. When the report, Harold is dead, flew around the field. The long-established story is that the king was killed by an arrow which struck him in the eye. A tradition that seemingly goes back to the Bayeux Tapestry which was stitched only a few years later. There are, however, reasons to doubt whether Harold really did die in this way. In the first place, multiple questions have been raised about the tapestry itself, which is technically an embroidery. Is the figure with the arrow in his eye really Harold, or is the king represented by the figure to the left, being ridden down by a Norman knight? Is the arrow actually an arrow, or was it a spear that has been customised by overzealous restorers in the 19th century? And even if the tapestry artist did intend to show Harold with an arrow in his eye, was this really what happened? It can be demonstrated beyond any doubt that the designer based certain scenes on images he found in illustrated manuscripts kept in the monastic libraries in Canterbury and it seems possible that Harold's death is an occasion where such borrowing has taken place. No other contemporary source mentions the arrow in the eye, and moreover the song, our earliest account of the battle, describes Harold being hacked down by a dedicated Norman death squad. Number 7. How many casualties were there at the Battle of Hastings? Again, we don't know for sure, but all the sources agree that the Battle of Hastings was a very bloody affair. The Anglo-Saxon chronicle, laconic as it is, speaks of great slaughter on both sides. William of Poitiers, describing the aftermath, wrote that far and wide, the earth was covered with the flower of the English nobility and youth drenched in blood. For the Godwinson family in particular, the battle was catastrophic. For not only King Harold, but two of his younger brothers, Leofwine and Gurth, were among the fallen. Another brother, Tostig, had been killed three weeks earlier at Stamford Bridge. According to the song of the Battle of Hastings, William buried his own dead, but left the bodies of the English to be eaten by worms and wolves, by birds and dogs. Nor was the heavy death toll at Hastings confined to the site of the battle itself, Throughout the night that followed, the Normans pursued those English who had fled after Harold's death, but came undone when, in the darkness, they rode their horses headlong into an unseen ancient ditch, later dubbed the Malfos. As the chronicler, Orderic Vitalis, explained in the early 12th century, the Norman cavalry fell one on top of the other, thus crushing each other to death. And number eight, where is King Harold buried? The discovery in 1954 of a grave in the parish church of Bosham in West Sussex containing the remains of a well-dressed Anglo-Saxon man prompted speculation in some quarters that Harold's final resting place had been found. But ignoring this on the grounds that other well-dressed men are known to have died in Anglo-Saxon England, we have two more credible alternatives. One is that Harold was buried at Waltham Abbey in Essex, a church he had refounded and richly endowed during his lifetime. The story that the king was buried there, however, does not appear in the Abbey's Chronicle until the late 12th century. And by the early 13th century, the monks of Waltham were claiming that Harold had actually survived the Battle of Hastings and lived out the rest of his days as a hermit, supposedly in Chester. Contemporary accounts, by contrast, tell us that the king was buried on top of a cliff in Sussex, under a mocking inscription to the effect that he could continue to guard the seashore. This is the story told by both the Song of the Battle of Hastings and William of Poitiers, and is arguably more credible. Poitiers in particular is always at pains to defend the behaviour of his master, William the Conqueror. Had William permitted Harold to be buried at Waltham, it would be very strange for Poitiers not to have said so. from the dailymail.co.uk website, a story by Mark Prigg. Tasmania's Lost Ocean World. Stunned researchers reveal a new chain of volcanic towers, 1.9 miles high, teeming with wildlife, and so big whales use them to navigate. Stunned scientists have revealed a lost world deep under the sea off Tasmania. Researchers mapping the area found a previously unknown chain of volcanic towers under the water about 250 miles east of Tasmania. The seamounts tower up to 1.9 miles from the surrounding seafloor, but the highest peaks are still far beneath the waves, at nearly 1.2 miles below the surface. The Lost World was uncovered during detailed seafloor mapping by the CSIRO research vessel Investigator while on a 25-day research voyage led by scientists from the Australian National University. This is a very diverse landscape and will undoubtedly be a biological hotspot that supports a dazzling array of marine life, said Dr Tara Martin from the CSIRO mapping team. She said the mapping offered a window into a previously unseen and spectacular undersea world. Our multi-beam mapping has revealed in vibrant detail for the first time a chain of volcanic seamounts rising from an abyssal plain about 5,000 metres deep, Dr Martin said. The seamounts vary in size and shape, with some having sharp peaks while others have wide flat plateaus dotted with small conical hills that would have been formed by ancient volcanic activity. Having detailed maps of such areas is important to help us better manage and protect these unique marine environments and provides a stepping stone for future research. Ship data collected during the voyage revealed spikes in ocean productivity over the chain of seamounts with increased phytoplankton activity and marine animal observations in the area. Dr Eric Woller from BirdLife Tasmania, who was on the investigator with the team conducting seabird and marine mammal surveys, was astounded by the amount of life they saw above the seamounts. While we were over the chain of seamounts, the ship was visited by large numbers of humpback and long-finned pilot whales, Dr Waller said. We estimated that at least 28 individual humpback whales visited us on one day, followed by a pod of 60 to 80 long finned pilot whales the next. We also saw large numbers of seabirds in the area, including four species of albatross and four species of petrel. Clearly, these seamounts are a biological hotspot that supports life, both directly on them as well as in the ocean above, he said. Research indicates that seamounts may be vital stopping points for some migratory animals, especially whales. Whales may use these seafloor features as navigational aids during their migration. These seamounts may act as an important signpost on an underwater migratory highway for the humpback whales we saw moving from their winter breeding to summer feeding grounds, Dr Waller said. Lucky for us in our research, we parked right on top of this highway of marine life. The life and origin of the seamounts will be further studied later this year when Investigator returns to the region for two further research voyages in November and December. A range of surveys will be conducted on these voyages including capturing high resolution video of marine life on the seamounts using deep water cameras, and collecting rock samples to better understand their formation and origin. Dr. Woller will be on the first of these voyages and expects further surprises on the return visit. We expect that these seamounts will be a biological hotspot year-round, and the summer visit will give us another opportunity to uncover the mysteries of the marine life they support, he said. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link to this article, there are some computer generated images and a video of the sea mounts. And from the coolinterestingstuff.com the Strange Case of the Isdal Woman The Discovery of the Strange Mystery On the 29th of November 1970, at approximately 1315, while hiking in the foothills of Mount Ulriken's North Face, in an area known as Isdalen Valley, a university professor and his two young daughters came across the partially charred remains of a naked woman hidden among some rocks, At a remote hiking trail. Present at the scene were large amounts of sleeping pills and bottles of petrol. A full-scale murder investigation was immediately initiated and the case has since evolved to become the most comprehensive criminal case by the Bergen police. Strange goings on. Police traced the woman to two suitcases that were found in an NSB train station in Bergen. Police also found that the labels had been removed from every piece of clothing she wore and that her fingerprints had been sanded away. In addition, police discovered a prescription for a lotion, but both the doctor's name and date had been removed. Within the lining on one suitcase, police discovered 500 German marks. Partial fingerprints were found on a few pieces of broken glass. They were insufficient for an identification, but police suspected that they belonged to the dead woman. The police were able to make composite sketches on the basis of witness descriptions and analysis made from the body. These sketches were published in the media and disseminated via Interpol in a number of countries. A postcard in the case led police to an Italian photographer, who admitted he had taken the woman out to dinner, but he was unable to shed any light on her identity. He said she claimed to be an antiques dealer from South Africa. Another hotel guest confirmed that she was South African, but said she was on a tour of beautiful places in Norway. The woman apparently liked porridge with milk, smoked cigarettes, and was overheard speaking to a companion in German, possibly over the phone, saying, I'm coming soon. Police eventually found out that the woman had travelled around Norway and Europe with nine different identities. Genevieve Lancia, Claudia Jelt, Vera Schlossnick, Claudia Nielsen, Alexia Zana Michez, Vera Jarl, Finella Locke, and Elizabeth Leen Hauguffer. All of these identities were false. According to witness sightings, the woman used various wigs and in the trunk there were found several cryptic diary entries. The codes were later deciphered by police, which concluded that they were coded dates and places the woman had previously visited. The woman's teeth were thoroughly checked during the autopsy, and the way the dental work was performed indicated that the woman had been to a dentist in Latin America. Witnesses reported that the woman had spoken several languages, French, German, English and Dutch. The woman had stayed at several hotels in Bergen. She had repeatedly changed rooms after checking in, when she wanted a room that had a balcony. In the papers she signed, the check specified that she was a travelling saleswoman and antiquities collector. The woman was fond of porridge with milk, as this order was left at several of the hotels where the woman had stayed. After the woman's suitcases were found, police sought the help of the city's most prominent textile retailers to identify her dress. It was concluded that the woman had somewhat a challenging style, which was marked by Italian taste. Even stranger. On the 24th of November, five days before the discovery of the woman, a local 26-year-old man was hiking with friends around the same area. He reported to have come across a woman of foreign appearance, her face completely distorted by fear. He noted that the woman was dressed elegantly, although not appropriately for being outdoors, let alone hiking in the hills. As they passed each other, she formed her mouth, as if to say something, but appeared intimidated by two black-coated men who followed her. The men also had a foreign appearance. The 26-year-old contacted the police after hearing that a young woman was found dead in the same area. He immediately recognised her from the composite sketches. But according to him, the policeman with whom he spoke answered, Forget her, she was dispatched. The case will never be solved. He followed the advice, waiting 32 years to tell the story publicly. Timeline This is a timeline of her last known movements, based on the contents of her diary and other witness sightings. The diary was a black notebook found in one of the suitcases, which used coded dates and locations. Never any info on the specifics of the code. March 20, 1970. Travels from Geneva to Oslo. March 21-24. 1970, stays at Hotel Viking in Oslo using the name Genevieve Lancia. March 24, flies from Oslo to Stavanger, takes the boat to Bergen, stays the night at Hotel Bristol under the name Claudia Tilt. March 25 to April 1, stays at Scandia Hotel in Bergen, still as C. Tilt. April 1, travels from Bergen to Stavanger and on to Kristiansand, Hertzschilds, Hamburg and Basel, Germany. October 3, travels from Stockholm, Sweden to Oslo, Norway and on to Opdal, Norway, a popular ski resort. October 22, stays at Hotel Altona in Paris. October 23-29, stays at Hotel de Calais in Paris, France. October 29 to 30, goes from Paris to Stavanger and on to Bergen, Norway. October 30 to November 5, checks into Hotel Neptune using the name Alexia Zerner Merchez, meets an unknown man at the hotel. November 6 to 9, travels to Trondheim, Norway and stays at the Hotel Bristol under the name Vera Jarl. November 9, goes to Oslo and on to Stavanger, stays at Hotel Saints Witten using the name Fenella Lorch. November 18, goes with the boat Vinktor to Bergen, stays at Hotel Rosenkrantz under the name Elizabeth Lienhauer from Belgium. October 19-23, stays at Hotel Hordeheimen, remains in the hotel and seems watchful. November 23, leaves the hotel in the morning, pays in cash and goes to the railway station where she places two pieces of luggage in a depository box. November 29, found dead in Isdalen. The Theory There is a lot of speculation that the Isdal woman was a spy. A burned passport means severing ties with your home country, if only symbolically. It is a protest against unfair conditions or corruption. There is no mention of which country's passport this was. If there's any truth in the espionage theory then the relentless silence and the lack of an identification despite many specific and unusual details put Istal Woman in the same category as the Summerton Man. Persistent rumours suggest that the answers to her identity will be found in a vault in Moscow and that she was betrayed by someone close to her. Deep in the heart of the Amazon, legends tell of a river so hot that it boils from below. As a geoscientist, Andre Rousseau's training told him the stories couldn't be true. But that was before he saw the river with his own eyes. It's incredible to think that there are natural wonders on this planet not yet known to science. But such was the case for the river at Mai publicised for the first time In the Boiling River, Adventure and Discovery in the Amazon. The book is an engrossing true story of the discovery, adventure, science and mysticism told by a man who was driven to explain something impossible and is now on a quest to preserve it. From the gizmodo.com.au website, an article by Maddie Stone scientists discover a boiling river of Amazonian legend. When he was 12 years old, growing up in Peru, Ruzo's grandfather told him a strange story. As the Spanish conquistadors killed the last Inca emperor, they headed deep into the Amazon rainforest in search of gold. Few of these men would ever return. But those who did spoke of a waking nightmare, poisoned water, Man-eating snakes, starvation, disease and a river that boils from below as if lit by a great fire. The image of that boiling river seared itself into Rousseau's mind. But it wasn't until years later as a PhD student in geophysics at Southern Methodist University that he started to wonder if the legend could be true. This was just idle curiosity Rousseau's thesis project centred around creating the first detailed geothermal map of Peru, including parts of the Amazon. If a boiling river existed, it would surely merit recognition. But his senior colleagues dismissed the idea as preposterous. It would take a tremendous amount of geothermal heat to boil even a small section of river, and the Amazon basin lies hundreds of kilometres from any active volcanoes. One advisor even suggested that Rousseau stop asking stupid questions if he wanted to finish his PhD. But Rousseau didn't stop asking, and eventually he found someone who took his questions about a boiling river seriously. His aunt. That's because she'd been to one. The river turned out to be no legend at all, but the sacred geothermal healing site of Mayontuyaku nestled deep in the Peruvian rainforest, and protected by a powerful shaman. Rousseau couldn't quite believe it until he saw it for himself. But once he did, his life changed. Up to 25 metres wide and 6 metres deep, the river surges for nearly 6 kilometres at elevated temperatures. Around Mai Tuyuku, the water is hot enough to brew tea, or cook any animals unfortunate enough to fall in. And yes, a small portion of it is so hot that it actually boils. You're surrounded by the sounds of the rainforest, Rousseau told Gizmodo. You feel this water surging past you and plumes of vapour coming up. It's truly a spectacular place. Mayuntuyuku is visited each year by a handful of tourists who come to experience the traditional medicinal practices of the Ashaninka people. Save several obscure references in petroleum journals from the 1930s, Scientific documentation of the river is non-existent. Somehow, this natural wonder has managed to elude widespread notice for over 75 years. Many of us turn to fiction to escape the mundanity of the real world. But as the boiling river so poignantly illustrates, fantastical discoveries are lurking all around us. It takes a special type of persistence and a little bit of crazy to pull the clues out of the white noise of everyday routine. When Rousseau did, he was rewarded with the biggest adventure of his life. And it's an adventure that's just beginning. Having forged a strong relationship with the local community, Rousseau is now conducting detailed geothermal studies of the Boiling River, attempting to place it in the context of the Amazon Basin. He's also collaborating with microbial ecologists to investigate the extremophile organisms living in its scalding waters. Anything that survives here could offer insights into how life got its start billions of years ago, when the Earth was a much harsher planet. But most importantly, Rousseau's trying to save the boiling river. In the middle of my PhD, I realised that this river is a natural wonder, Rousseau said, and it's not going to be around unless we do something about it. Since Ruzo first visited Mayantayaku in 2011, the surrounding forest has been decimated by illegal logging. If action isn't taken, the site held sacred by generations of Ashinika cultural practitioners could soon vanish. Ruzo hopes that by putting a spotlight on the boiling river, he can garner the public interest and financial support needed to ensure its long-term survival. Meanwhile, Mayantuyuku faces many threats, from loggers to would-be energy developers. The coalition to protect its unique natural and cultural heritage grows stronger every day. Rousseau recently received a grant from National Geographic, part of which will go towards using technology, including drones and satellites, to learn which regions of the surrounding forest are the most vulnerable. To strengthen the conservation effort on the ground, he's teamed up with the Peruvian environmental organisations and local community leaders. Ultimately, if the boiling river is to survive, it will be because people came together and recognised its intrinsic value. After reading Rousseau's captivating real-life adventure story, you might be inclined to agree. I don't like the concept of one person leading this charge. I think it's about building a community on an international scale, Rousseau said. The planet's gotten small and natural wonders like this are few and far between. And before we continue the podcast, just a few thank yous. The bandwidth for the podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins.info website. Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. The podcast has a Facebook page, Facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And many of you may already know that I do extra episodes of the Mysteries Abound podcast. These are available to patrons. And if you'd like to become a patron, just visit the patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex website. And Patreon is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you're not sure of the link, just visit the show notes and click on the link there. What happens is, each month I release one free episode of the Mysteries Abound podcast just like this one. And then for the other three weeks, I release one new patrons-only episode each week. If you'd like to subscribe, it's only $1 per episode. You don't have to subscribe to all three. You can set how many you like when you set it all up at the patreon.com website. By becoming a patron, you ensure that I get a small income for creating the podcast. Without this small income, I'm afraid the podcast just wouldn't happen. For less than a cup of coffee each month, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. If you become a patron, your help is truly and greatly appreciated. And remember, it's at patreon.com forward slash Rex, And Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you, everyone, and on with the podcast. And from the time.com website, Columbus believed he would find blemues and skyopods, not people in the New World. And this is written by Peter C. Mancall. In 1492, when Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic Ocean in search of a fast route to East Asia and the Southwest Pacific, he landed in a place that was unknown to him, There he found treasures, extraordinary trees, birds and gold. But there was one thing that Columbus expected to find that he didn't. Upon his return in his official report, Columbus noted that he had discovered a great many islands inhabited by people without number. He praised the natural wonders of the islands. But he added, I have not found any monstrous men in these islands, as many had thought. Why, one might ask, had he expected to find monsters? My research and that of other historians reveal that Columbus's views were far from abnormal. For centuries, European intellectuals had imagined a world beyond their borders populated by monstrous races. Of course the monstrous races exist, One of the earliest accounts of these non-human beings was written by the Roman historian Pliny the Elder in 77 AD. In a massive treatise he told his readers about dog-headed people known as cynocephalus and Estoni, creatures with no mouth and no need to eat. Across medieval Europe, Tales of marvellous and inhuman creatures, of cyclops, oblemies, creatures with heads in their chests, and skyopods, who had a single leg with a giant foot, circulated in manuscripts, hand-copied by scribes, who often embellished their treatises with illustrations of these fantastic creatures. Though there were always some sceptics, most Europeans believed that distant lands would be populated by these monsters and stories of monsters travelled far beyond the rarefied libraries of elite readers. For example, churchgoers in Frasius, an ancient market town in the south of France, could wander into the cloister of the Cathédrale Saint-Léonce and study monsters on the more than 1,200 painted wooden ceiling panels. Some panels portrayed scenes of daily life, local monks, a man riding a pig, and contorted acrobats. Many others depicted monstrous hybrids, dog-headed people, blemies, and other fearsome wretches. Perhaps no one did more to spread the news of monsters' existence than a 14th century knight named John Mandeville, who, in his account of his travels to faraway lands, claimed to have seen people with the ears of an elephant, one group of creatures who had flat faces with two holes, and another that had the head of a man and the body of a goat. Scholars debate whether Mandeville could have ventured far enough to see the places that he described, and whether he was even a real person. But his book was copied time and again, and likely translated into every known European language. Leonardo da Vinci had a copy, so did Columbus. Old beliefs die hard. Even though Columbus didn't see monsters, his report wasn't enough to dislodge prevailing ideas about the creatures Europeans expected to find in parts unknown. In 1493, around the time Columbus's first report began to circulate, printers of the Nuremberg Chronicle, a massive volume of history, included images and descriptions of monsters. And soon after the explorer's return, an Italian poet offered a verse translation describing Columbus's journey, which its printer illustrated with monsters, including a skypod and a blimmy. Indeed, the belief that monsters lived at the Earth's edge remained for generations. In the 1590s, the English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh told readers about the American monsters he had heard about in his travels to Guyana, some of which had their eyes in their shoulders and their mouths in the middle of their breasts, and that a long train of hair groweth backward between their shoulders. Soon after, the English natural historian Edward Topsell translated a mid-16th century treatise of the various animals of the world, a book that appeared in London in 1607, the same year that colonists established a small community at Jamestown, Virginia. Topsell was eager to integrate descriptions of American animals in his book. But alongside chapters on Old World horses, pigs and beavers, readers learned about the Norwegian monster and a very deformed beast that Americans called an Hort. Another, known as a Sioux, had a very deformed shape and monstrous presence, and was cruel, untamable, impatient, violent and ravening. Of course, in the New World, the gains for Europeans came at a terrifying cost for Native Americans. The newcomers stole their land and treasures, enslaved them, introduced Old World diseases and spurred long-term environmental change. In the end, perhaps these indigenous Americans saw the invaders of their homelands as a monstrous race of its own. Creatures who destabilised their communities, took their possessions and threatened their lives. And from the DailyMail.co.uk website, a story by Laura Hedges. Australia's most haunted house. A quarantine station which once housed patients with the world's deadliest diseases is now feared to be possessed by the ghosts of children who died from the Black Death. Woodman Point Quarantine Station in Western Australia is possibly the most haunted house in Australia. Ghost hunters trek from far and wide to test its paranormal activity and are rarely disappointed. Located in Fremantle, Perth, the station was built in 1886 to prevent the sick and diseased from entering the Western Australian community. It operated for 90 years and saw some of the world's most deadly diseases – including the Black Plague, tuberculosis, leprosy, smallpox and the Spanish Flu. The Spanish Flu pandemic was perhaps the station's worst tragedy and it is rumoured that the 27 soldiers and 4 nurses that died of the infection in 1918 still haunt the building today. Worldwide, the Spanish flu claimed more than 50 million lives and it arrived on Western Australian shores shortly after the end of World War I on a ship called the Boona, carrying soldiers home from South Africa. Journalists from the West Australian, however, met a resident ghost that Western Australian medium Rebecca Millman believes died of the Black Plague when they visited the station earlier this month. Millman says that they were in the presence of a young boy called Robert and she heard the song Ring a Ring a Rosie, an old song linked to the Black Death, causing her to believe that's what took his life. Cameras didn't pick up any paranormal activity but even the most experienced ghost hunters can spend hours trying to catch ghosts on film. Miss Millman has been holding tours in the haunted building for about eight years and once a year she hosts an overnight tour where she tries to communicate with spirits in the area. Pretty much we always get some form of activity, whether it's something turning up in someone's photos, or you name it, we always get something, she said. In the hospital there's quite a bit of activity. There can be anywhere from five or six spirits in there at a time. Ms. Millman says that the tours were not designed to be scary, explaining that the ghosts can present themselves in many different ways. Sometimes they'll whistle, sometimes they'll come up and groan. We've had spirit light produced, some little balls of green lights. We've had a physical touch and playing with electrical equipment, she says. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there are a number of photographs of the station itself, and a couple of historical photographs associated with the story. And to bring the podcast to a close, a story of gargantuan size. From the inverse.com, a story by Sarah Sloat. Biologists finally solve the mystery of why elephants have wrinkled skin. I bet you wanted to know about this. If you focus directly on the skin of an African elephant, you can transport yourself far away from the 11 foot tall beast Disregard the tusks, the flapping ears, and the twenty inch feet. Once you've zeroed in on its fissured hide, you might as well be looking at the dried flecks of mud in an ancient lake bed or the cracked surface of Mars. For a long time, scientists had no idea why those cracks existed. But as a new study in nature communication shows, those cracks aren't there because the elephant is in need of a whole lot of lotion. As it turns out, a million years of evolution planned out every single line. In the study published Tuesday, researchers from the University of Geneva and the Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics attempt to understand once and for all why elephant skin is so wrinkled. Using microscopy and computer modeling, they explained that the skin is not a mess of wrinkles, but rather an important pattern of intricate cracks that make it possible for animals to stay cool and protect themselves from parasites. Indeed, their skin is of course wrinkled. That's very visible. But if one has a much closer look, one realises that the integument is also deeply sculpted by an intricate network of minuscule interconnected crevices Study lead and University of Geneva professor Mikhail Milinkovic, PhD, explains to Inverse. This beautiful fine pattern of millions of channels is adaptive because it prevents shedding of applied mud and allows for the spreading and retention of five to times more water than at the skin's immediate surface, allowing the animal to efficiently control its body temperature with evaporative coolings. Malinkevich's lab specialises in the developmental and evolutionary mechanisms that created the diversity of life on Earth. He and his colleagues are especially interested in morphogenesis, the biological process that gives an organism its shape. In 2013, the lab determined that the face and jaw scales of crocodiles aren't individual units, but the result of a process analogous to the formation of cracks in cooling porcelain. After that study, Milinkovic began to wonder whether a similar process was responsible for the skin of other dry-looking animals. And so, five years ago, he turned his attention to the fractured-looking skin of African elephants. Unlike those in Asia, African elephants have cracked skin. By examining elephant skin samples provided by scientists and museums using microscopes and physics-based modelling, the team determined that any cracks are actually fractures of the skin's outermost layer, known as the stratum corneum. These fractures in turn are connected by a network of minuscule crevices. Together, they're like a lattice of dried up lake beds linked together by dried up waterways waiting for rain to fall. They're crucial for making the most of moisture in the dry African heat. When the scientists applied mud to the elephant skin in one experiment, they found that the network of millions of channels was necessary for preventing the dry skin from shedding immediately. Furthermore, when water was applied, the cracked skin retained five to ten times more water than a flat surface without cracks. So when African elephants bathe, spray, and roll around in mud, they aren't just having fun, They're engaging in an important process to protect themselves from their harsh environment. Slathering mud on the skin protects elephants from the sun and parasites, and the water they throw on their back helps them to not overheat in the scorching African sun. Unlike mud, the skin cracks are not generated by shrinking, but by bending. Using a computer model, the team learned that the cracks develop as bending stress on the growing epidermis of a young elephant causes the skin to get progressively thicker, until it gets so thick that it cracks. That skin is hyperkeratinised, that is, rich in the protein keratin, which helps make nails, hair and horns tough. And it grows increasingly thicker because the new skin cells form faster than they shed at the surface. In fact, the tough skin doesn't really shed at all. This helps explain why baby African elephants don't have cracks in their skin. Their delicate skin simply hasn't done enough bending. Grown Asian elephants don't have cracks either. But this requires an evolutionary explanation. Malinkovich reasons that cracks would be less useful to Asian elephants since they live in a wetter environment. Increased humidity reduces the efficiency of evaporative cooling, and the whole point of the cracks seems to be to hold water that can lower body temperature as it evaporates. In other words, Asian elephants don't struggle to keep cool. But African elephants, meanwhile, have less frequent access to water and so they need skin that can store water for longer periods of time. They don't have sweat and sebum glands, So sweat can't help their skin stay moist and flexible. Cracks are a necessity. Collecting water in and on the skin so that the elephants can avoid overheating. While the fractures of the skin are a necessity for elephants, they're not quite as beneficial for humans. The scientists also discovered similarities between the skin morphology of African elephants and the skin of humans with an inherited disorder called ichthyosis vulgaris. This genetic disorder causes thick, dry scales to accumulate on the skin's surface and currently has no cure. The striking resemblance between the two is the aspect of the study that Milinkovic finds the most fascinating if validated by future molecular and cell biology comparisons. This equivalence would then make a remarkable link between a human pathological condition and the skin of an iconic species of pachyderm, Malinkovic says. This correspondence would also demonstrate that similar mutations that occurred independently in the evolutionary lineages of humans and African elephants turned out to be unfavourable in the former and adaptive in the latter. Milinkovic hopes this study will be able to help validate this link between a human pathological condition and the skin of African elephants. But most importantly, he says, it's a new, beautiful example of how physical processes are involved in the development of animal forms and shapes. Well, good friends, that concludes episode 172 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you'd like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, you can do it at the patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex website or click on the link at the show notes at origins.info. And for the price of a cup of coffee or less each month, you can gain access to three more of these podcasts. And not only will you get three more podcasts and lots of entertainment, but you will ensure the long-term viability of the podcast itself. Anyway, thank you for your support everyone and until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now, keep well, keep safe and thank you for listening.